Acts 7, starting at verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I know that's not a really pleasant story for Mother's Day, but we've been following the Revised Common Lectionary for quite some time now, and this is what we got. We've been reading from the Acts of the Apostles in particular because the Easter season invites us, really, after the resurrection of Jesus, to consider the beginnings of our church that is still acting the Acts of the Apostles to this day, in this place even. And so we want to look at these different things that have happened to see how we can learn. And one thing about this story that I'm sure every mother here can relate to is people throwing temper tantrums. Uh, There is certainly a temper tantrum going on here. The worst part of this story, though, is these are supposed to be mature adult religious leaders in the community. And they're plugging their ears and going, I can't hear you, even as they're trying to shove him out of town and down into a ditch so they can all pile rocks on him. Because that's actually what stoning was like in those days. Now, this is is what most of the scholars believe. Uh, When someone was stoned, and I don't want to get into gory details, but the fact is that that what they did was they threw him into a ditch or a ravine or something, which they have plenty of over there, and they started throwing rocks down at them, which they have plenty over there of. And if the person didn't expire soon enough to suit them, they'd get a couple of big guys to grab bigger rocks and throw them down there until they achieved their end. But the interesting thing about this story that I want to investigate with you today is the fact that these people, mature, responsible, adult, religious leaders, therefore some of the more sophisticated and educated people in their community, angrily plugged their ears and yelled and threw this guy out and killed him. And it's just really hard for me to wrap my mind around that, and I'm sure you must feel the same way. It causes me to try to understand anger and the way that anger affects our behavior. And certainly, anger is a common emotional response that we all have experience with. Everybody knows what it's like to be mad. We've, we've all had those experiences. And to understand what was happening to Stephen, you need to hear at least a little bit of background. And the story basically is that Stephen had, in the previous verses, been giving them one of the best Bible study lessons ever. And what he had done in his Bible study lesson was to show them something that you've heard me say a few times, and I don't take credit for this phrase, I got it from someone else, but this phrase that says the Old Testament is Christ concealed, the New Testament is Christ revealed. And Stephen, in his lesson to these religious leaders of the day, these leading religious authorities, 
was a expository message about the Old Testament so that it was revealing Christ in the Old Testament to these people of the New Testament. And they were getting angry. They didn't like what they were hearing. They liked their Old Testament the way they understood it and they were angry enough to actually act childish and kill the man who was telling them things they didn't want to hear. Now, psychologists will tell you that anger is one of five basic human emotions that we all have. These primary emotions are mad, sad, glad, fear, and disgust. And some would say surprise is a sixth. Of those, all but glad and surprise are considered like native uh, uh, a caveman emotions, you know, that these are, these are fight or flight responses, that we have these emotions because we're afraid. So we get angry because we're afraid. And anger is one of the responses to fear that causes us to see if we can scare down whatever it is that's scaring us. So we get angry hoping that we can drive away whatever it is we're afraid of. Now, all of this happens subconsciously. It doesn't mean that we really know exactly that we're doing that. But if we can kind of heighten our awareness a little bit, we begin to realize that we're getting angry and we see this emotional response emerge. Have you seen this in other people? I I've seen it in myself, of course. I've seen it in others. I had a friend that uh, I went to school with years ago. He had a knot on the top of his bald head. And I swear, when his anger started to rise, it would get red in his neck and then in his ears and then up towards the top of his head, he would get red and then that knot would start blinking. Beep, 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 beep. And he was angry all the time, too. You didn't, we used to sit in the back row of this class and watch his head for entertainment. So we know what it's like to watch people get angry. We know what it's like when we feel ourselves getting angry. You can feel the response. And in a way, it's a good thing because after all, when we are threatened and there's a potential for us to get killed or hurt or something... And certainly a mother defending her young is a great example of that. Then this response will happen. You walk in the woods and you disturb a mother bear. Your impression of the bear is is that it's angry. You know, I've never actually interviewed a bear to say, were you mad when you tried to kill that person? Or were you just hungry? You know, I've never asked. so I don't know. But my guess is that our experience of the bear is that this is an angry animal. I think when any animal strikes out at a danger or a threat, it appears angry. So I think we can relate to this. And I just wanted to kind of establish this fact. Because if we're going to really understand what happened to Stephen that day. And why these kinds of stonings, whether they're literal or figurative, still happen in the religious community today. First, we need to really understand anger. And we need to understand that this anger is the result of fear. And the fear is is that something that makes us feel safe is being taken away from us. You know, Ruthie has a couple of guinea pigs, and she asked me yesterday, she said, why do they jump when you just look at them or whatever, and why are they, you know, kind of 
quick to respond. And I said, if you were a bite-sized morsel to virtually everyone else in the room, you'd be a little nervous about making friends. You know, when someone 50 times your size sticks their nose in your face and you realize that from your perspective as this little tiny thing, I'm good for one gulp, then it makes you a little afraid and your anger response, your fear response kicks in. Now, the thing the religious leaders in Stephen's day were afraid of is, I believe, a fear of having the, the religious establishment that gave them comfort taken away. In religion, there's this disease of discomfort, or of comfort, rather, and this fear of discomfort. In, in religion, the whole nature of the thing is about finding comfort. Religion makes us feel comfort in the light of those things that make us fearful. We live in a world of constant change, and so change makes us uncomfortable, and religion usually represents things that are unchanging, and that gives us comfort. And this would be true in their day, too. These people who killed Stephen were people who had, in generations and generations and generations, experienced one kind of oppression after another, either from outside agencies or from within. They'd either had their own corrupt kings bring about evil and oppression in their community, or they'd had external forces. And these people who killed Stephen, well, their grandparents remembered when the Greeks were terrorizing the Jews in Jerusalem and they were abusing the temple worship and so forth with their false gods and these people were now people living under the oppression of the Romans and the same threats persisted and the one thing that they had that no one could take away from them was their religious experience their religious culture and history and they had built around themselves a great wall of protection with the law and the ideals of their faith. And for that reason, people like Stephen and Jesus before him were a great threat to their sense of security. And when Stephen, I believe, started making so much sense that they were exceedingly threatened by his word, they had two choices. Think and pray and ask if God had truly done a new thing or shut this guy up before he frightens us even more. And worse, takes away the thing that gives us security. Recently at the Habitat for Humanity breakfast, I heard the leader of really great agency here in town say that she didn't want her organization to be like a silo. Now, I, I was really intrigued by this image because I'd never really heard it expressed that way before. And so as I left that meeting, I was thinking about that whole concept of a silo. And, you know, around here in farm country, you've got plenty of visual aids, you know. And I was looking at the different silos around town and around the countryside. And I was thinking, sure, that's a great way to express what could happen in an agency or an organization that is devoted to spiritual things. It can be narrow at the bottom and tall. It can be something that is designed to store up a lot and release a little at a time. And it can 
by its very nature, give you a great sense of security. Now, I mentioned that it's spiritual, so I want to just take a tiny little sidebar here and say that, that uh, it would be a great lesson for us to do together someday to talk about the difference between spiritual and material things. Because we think we know what that means, but if we, see, if we look at it in the spiritual, uh, I mean in the biblical sense of the word, then spiritual things are those things that are not particularly quantifiable and material things are quantifiable. In other words, you would spend your money to buy a gallon of gas, which is material. You would spend your money to buy food at the grocery store. But when you donate your money here, you're spending it on something spiritual. Now, we turn it into money that, uses, that is used to buy material things, you know. But spiritual things would be like a song. You pay for a song. You pay for an experience of a concert full of songs. You, you pay for a play. Or you pay for your cable TV so that you can experience spiritual things, things that have no substance, that can't be measured scientifically, but they have value. Those are spiritual things. And the material things are those things that have physical weight and properties that you can literally exchange one for another. The interesting thing that we should study together someday is that money is actually spiritual and not physical. And a lot of people don't realize that, but... uh, In some ways, it's more spiritual now that we don't use the gold standard, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, The thing is, a silo is a place that literally stores physical things, and it's meant to rise high and take up a small footprint on the ground. And the idea, I suppose, is that because you could always put another silo next to that one, and you could store up even more. But the problem is it's tall and narrow, and it doesn't go wide for anybody else to benefit from it. Now, when you're talking about a spiritual institution like Habitat for Humanity, or you're talking about a spiritual institution like the church, For it to be a silo is a way of saying we're going to just keep storing up what we have and hold on to it and only give out a little bit here and there and we're not going to go wide and risk anything being scattered and wasted or misused or something like that. This is the condition that Stephen encounters. He's come to a group of people to say, you need to release some of the rules and ideas that you hold sacred and let some of it out to the light of day and have it experienced and explored a little bit. And they had to make a decision then when they heard him, is the Lord doing something new or are we to protect against this latest heresy? Well, Jesus said this about silos and the silo mentality. He said that there was a certain rich man who had a great abundance in his crop one year, and he thought to himself, what shall I do since I have nowhere to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and goods, and I will say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy now. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be required of you. And then who will own what you have accumulated? And this is how it will be for anyone who stores up treasure for himself 
but is not rich toward God. God is drawing a distinction in this story from Jesus between the physical and the spiritual. Because if we're generous towards God, it means that we are open to God. We're listening. We're thinking. Stephen was figuratively going to this silo of security that the religious authorities had created, and it seemed to them that he was bringing a sledgehammer to the base of the silo with the attempt to let it all out and let it spill all over the place. But this was a risk they should have been willing to take, and they didn't know how to tell the difference. But the truth is, is it's easy to tell the difference if you think about the story that we just read from Jesus. If you are comfortable, you probably have some, some sort of problem. See, we, we like that religion gives us comfort. We like that our religious systems give us comfort, but at the same time, we need to be challenged. We need to feel a little threatened. You know, I, I, I hate to say this, but I hope every Sunday there are parts of this that give you a great deal of comfort and parts of this that make you terribly uncomfortable. That's how it should be. That means that you are packing away certain things that are worthy to keep for your comfort, for your spiritual edification, but you're also releasing a little bit of what business people call risk capital. See, everybody who has should at least consider letting some of what they have be riskable, you know? Risk capital is what business people use to invest in new opportunities that may or may not work out. Even churches should have a certain amount of risk capital, and that is both spiritual and physical, so that you can say, you know, I'm going to take a chance that this is the work of God and that God's going to do something in it, and you gamble in faith that this is something of God, and then maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's just not God's timing, maybe God uses it in a way that we're not able to really fully comprehend yet. But because we were willing to take a risk, something new happened, and we were open to it. Stephen's audience, on the other hand, just decided to plug their ears, yell a lot, and kill him. And we say, well, that wouldn't happen now. Well, actually it does. It happens a lot. So if you remember from last week, I mentioned that the shepherd's responsibility, although it's very difficult at times, is to have the wisdom to say, that's bad water. Those are weeds. Sheep, don't go there. Follow me. I'm taking you to the sweet water and the green pastures that God has as the owner of your flock restored and prepared for you. And so there are times when even in those days, religious leaders were doing the right thing if they were trying to protect against the heresy that would lead the sheep astray. The problem is, is if we get overly protective, we miss those new opportunities when God is at work. If we get so protective and so resolved to this comfort that we've created for ourselves, then we're liable to just get angry when it feels threatened and then do something stupid. Have anybody here, you don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever been so angry that you did something stupid that you later regretted? Sure. We all do. Because the problem with the anger response is is that once it gets past a certain point, we don't even care if it's rational. We don't even think about the consequences of our actions. We just do. 
And then we have to live with the consequences and sometimes we have to atone for those things that we did when we were angry. And sometimes we can and should and other times we find ourselves stuck. There was one guy present at this murder scene and the author of this book has wanted us to know this because he mentioned that there was a certain guy named Saul who was witnessing all of it who seemed to be holding their coats while they were out there killing Stephen. We don't know what happened to all the people who were involved in Stephen's murder, but we do know what happened to Saul. I can tell you that in all likelihood, most of the people involved in this terrible scene suffered terribly just a few years later when Rome demanded the destruction of Jerusalem and held siege over Jerusalem and then eventually destroyed it brick by brick. And those people probably didn't come out very well. But Saul became Paul, the apostle. He eventually had his mind changed. He eventually realized that his zeal to protect against heresy was blinding him to the reality that God was moving And that God was doing something new. And the irony is, is his blindness was cured by blindness. Because God thumped him on the head, left him blind for a little while. And another person had to change their mind. There was a person named Ananias who was called by God to receive Paul into his home and care for him. And Ananias says, God, you got to be out of your mind. This is the guy that's been trying to get us all killed. But he had his mind changed. He was afraid of Paul and was probably a little angry with God about being ordered to give Paul refuge. But he obeyed God, prayed, listened, and saw God do a new thing. And now Paul, the apostle, would be one of the most crucial figures in all of human history. And the unsung hero would be Ananias, who was willing to have his mind changed about Paul. It's not unprecedented, you know, even as Jesus was preaching in Jerusalem, even some of those same religious groups produced people who were willing to have their minds changed. So don't ever write off every Pharisee in the Bible or every Sadducee or every other religious leader in the Bible as evil because there was a Nicodemus, you remember, who was willing to have his mind changed. There was a Joseph of Arimathea who was willing to have his mind changed. So the real question then is, are you willing to have your mind changed? Are you willing to stand firm in those things that you know are true because they come from God, but at the same time be open to whenever God is doing a new thing? It's a lot scarier than hiding in comfort in your silo. But you also have the potential to change the world. This is literally what we mean when we say that we're being disciples, seeking disciples, and then changing the world. Because discipleship is that. Discipleship is living that dangerous life of putting some of your capital at risk while you fight to protect and defend other parts of it. Mothers know what I'm talking about. 
Because as a mother, you have your little baby right now that is utterly and completely dependent on you, Kelly. And this baby is not going to survive without every moment of your day and every fiber of your being and the help of your family, of course, being put into its care. But one day, Jacob, some slimy, scurvy teenage boy is going to take your angel for a date. (laughs) While you stand there and look him over from head to toe and try to think of how you can produce the most intimidating figure you've ever produced. You probably will practice it in the mirror (laughs) before he comes to pick her up. Right? Moms understand that one time these babies are utterly dependent on you, but then they look at you one day and they go, no. And you want to cry. And then, and then they say, me do it, me self, right? And then one day they put their little backpack on and they get up on the school bus step and they turn around and wave to you and then the door closes and you go in your house and cry. We understand Especially moms understand what God is asking us to do. Is to take risks and let new things happen. And yet, you hold on to the core. You know, they never really stop being your kids, right? They may have their own lives, their own children, and doing their own thing, but you are still mom. And that's what we're talking about. The silo never goes away. It's always there as a secure sign. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it on our hearts now. Help us to be willing to take risks, willing to stand firm for those things that are sacred and always true. And let your spirit guide us in knowing the difference. Lord, help us curb our anger. Recognize our fear and serve for your glory. Amen.